Hello again. You make note of the audience response. <laughs> Lethargic. All right. Matthew chapter 21 is our text. If you'd open your Bibles there or navigate on your device, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 in that chapter. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. The topic, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king, riding on a donkey. The title of our message, Donkey King. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us together, this unique group of individuals. I always marvel, Lord, at your wisdom and knowledge and understanding of our hearts. And we're here, Lord, having prepared our hearts to hear the word of God, which is alive and powerful, which in some fascinating, mysterious way discerns between our soul and our spirit and speaks to us so intimately, Lord, that we're amazed. No one knows us like you do. We don't even know ourselves. In fact, sometimes half the battle is getting out of the way so that you can speak to us. But we trust, Lord, that your word is powerful and that your spirit is here. As always, Lord, we pray for those who may not have yet accepted Christ as their savior. Your spirit doesn't indwell them, but nevertheless, he is striving with them even now, right now, seeking to convict them of their sin and of the righteousness that you offer in place of their sin so that they can go to heaven, Lord. And so I pray that you would be working on those hearts as well as the hearts of believers using these words, Lord, that you... Uh, preserved for us in the Gospel of Matthew. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agree to it, amen. I appreciate Snopes.com. If you've never heard of it, it's a website that investigates urban legends, internet rumors, email forwards, and other stories of unknown or questionable origin. Before you hit post on Facebook, you might want to check out whether or not, for example, Pope Francis commissioned J.K. Rowling's author of the Harry Potter series to rewrite the New Testament and make it more appealing to a younger generation. He didn't, but that didn't stop it from being spread on the internet. I had some pastor friends of mine who spread that on the internet. I had to be the one that told them that it wasn't true and they said, oh, thanks. I ended up at Snopes.com this week because I was researching the so-called prophecies of Nostradamus. It said, for example, that he accurately predicted the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York. Here's what the folks at Snopes had to say. Nostradamus did not write the quatrain that was widely attributed to him in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. As a footnote, they say, one wonders how a guy who died in 1566 could have written an item identified as being written in 1654. But then they go on to say it originated with a student at Brock University in Canada appearing in a web-published essay on Nostradamus. That particular quatrain was offered by the author, Neil Marshall, as a fabricated example to illustrate how easily an important-sounding prophecy could be crafted through the use of abstract imagery. And so people mistook what this guy wrote as an example to be an actual accurate prophecy, which it wasn't. Bible prophecies are specific and they are detailed. Fulfillment of Bible prophecies are usually obvious and they're always 100% accurate. 
In an article comparing Nostradamus' so-called prophecies to Bible prophecy, apologist and theologian Dr. Norman Geisler concluded this, there is no real comparison between Nostradamus' predictions and those of the Bible. His are vague, fallible, and occult. Those of the Bible are clear, infallible, and divine. The Bible made numerous clear and distinct predictions hundreds of years in advance. Nostradamus did not. There is no evidence that Nostradamus was a prophet at all. Certainly, he was like none in the Bible. Biblical prophecy stands unique in its claim to be supernatural. Now, our text in Matthew presents a remarkable, 100% accurate fulfillment of prophecy, several prophecies, as a matter of fact. Five centuries before Jesus Christ was born, Daniel predicted the exact day he would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's part of the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks. Around the same time Daniel was written, the prophet Zechariah predicted exactly how the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. Both the day and the way Jesus would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem were perfectly predicted centuries before they occurred. Jesus fulfilled not just these two prophecies, but in his lifetime, as many as 352. The odds of one man doing that are incredible. I'm going to offer some numerical perspective a little bit later. It's mathematics at its best, and therefore we would say it's scientific, and therefore we would say it's proof that what we believe is true, or at least that the Bible is true. The Bible is the word of God, and Jesus is the son of God. He's the God-man sent from heaven to earth to save the human race. As we enter Jerusalem with Jesus via these incredible verses in the Gospel of Matthew, we can ask ourselves two questions that are suggested by the text. Number one, do you fear the Lord who fulfills prophecy? And number two, do you hear the Lord who solicits, uh, solicits rather your participation? First of all, do you fear the Lord who fulfills prophecy? One thing that immediately strikes you about chapter 21 is a major change in Jesus regarding public recognition of who he was. After avoiding every effort by followers to promote him as king and often withdrawing from crowds, Jesus takes the lead in orchestrating his entry into Jerusalem on what we now know was his final visit to the city before his crucifixion. We're taking a look here at what we call Palm Sunday. Now, verse one, now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey." Now, we're going to return to these verses and talk about the response of the disciples when we ask our second question. For now, we're concentrating on the fulfillment of prophecy. The specific prophecy, and please note it is very specific, is found in the book of Zechariah in chapter 9 and verse 9. It was spoken and written down somewhere between 520 and 518 B.C., if that's not remarkable enough, Daniel predicted the specific day Jesus would enter Jerusalem. Daniel, originally deported to Babylon as a teenager, was reading the book of Jeremiah. He understood that the 70 years of captivity God had ordered for Israel were almost over, and so he began to pray for his people. 
The angel Gabriel interrupted Daniel's prayer and gave him a four-verse prophecy that is unquestionably one of the most remarkable passages in the entire Bible, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It would take a long time to go over the entire prophecy. Let me just give you this one verse, verse 25, Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now this is a mathematical prophecy. Daniel was made aware of a specific period of time consisting of what the angel called seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks. These are weeks of years, seven-year periods of time. The Jews and the Babylonians, uh, their calendar used a 360-day year. So 69 weeks of 360-day years totals 173,880 days. In effect, Gabriel told Daniel that the interval between a commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah as its king would be 173,880 days. This commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes, the Persian king, on a date known to historians, March 14, 445 BC. Exactly 173,880 days after that decree, Jesus, who had previously avoided recognition, actively arranged to enter Jerusalem as its king, riding on the proper animal in absolute fulfillment of those two prophecies and many others. Verse six, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means something like save now. Son of David is the title of the Jewish Messiah who must be legally descended from David in David's line in order to qualify as the king. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who noticed that clothing and leaves tie into the Garden of Eden. Because of their choice to disobey God, Adam and Eve, you'll remember, had to clothe themselves with leaves. The clothing and the leaves are being trampled on by Jesus, symbolic of his victory over Satan and sin and death. What Adam and Eve started in uh, the Garden of Eden, Jesus was victorious over in his uh, triumphal entry. Verse 10, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who's this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, it was Sunday, it was the first day of the week, and Jerusalem was swelled with pilgrims who had come to celebrate the Passover. We can't really tell too much from the crowd's description of Jesus as the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Were they missing the mark by simply calling him the prophet? Or did they mean to indicate he was the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy by Moses understood to be the Messiah. It's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. 
The mention of Nazareth and Galilee was probably made by folks from that region who were traveling to Jerusalem and were expressing a kind of local pride in Jesus. He may have had no respect in Nazareth from his own neighbors before, but now that he looked to be the Messiah, all that changed. Sort of like this year when everybody became a Seahawks fan. I mean, really. Did you even know that the Seattle Seahawks were a football team until this year? Some of you are lifetime Seahawks fans. God bless you. But every year, you, you, the, the, you know, all of a sudden, you're the fan of one of those teams. I say if your team doesn't make it, just ignore the game. I mean, that's a real fan. You want to be a real fan? Hey, if my team doesn't make it, I'm golfing that day. Uh, or actually go to Disneyland. It's usually pretty quiet on Super Bowl Sunday. But anyway, back into our text. Uh, of course, this is the same crowd, we need to point out, that would in just a few days shout out, crucify him. And so we, we're not looking for the recognition of the crowd. We don't want to get our theology from the crowd. Verse 12, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers uh, and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now the pilgrims coming to sacrifice at Passover were forced to exchange their money for temple currency. The money changers were allowed to charge exorbitant rates and they kicked back a portion to the high priest. This is what we would call a racket. Not only that, if you bought if you brought your own animal to sacrifice, the priest would find something wrong with it when they inspected it, forcing you to purchase a pre-approved animal that they had available, but again, at an outrageous price. And not only that, this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which was intended to give non-Jews and outcasts the opportunity to approach the God of Israel for mercy and to understand salvation. Instead, they would come in and they would see nothing but worldly, secular corruption, and they would be turned away. My house is a claim of deity. House of prayer is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. Den of thieves is from Jeremiah 7, 11. So the Lord brought two scriptures together to describe what he uh, saw, what he analyzed was happening there. The Gospel of John records Jesus doing this same behavior at the beginning of his three and a half year ministry. Now he does it again here at the end. I hate to draw encouragement from negative results, but the overturning of their tables didn't have any lasting effect. Jesus came in with the power and the authority that was granted to him. He overturned their tables three and a half years later, actually way before that, but when he visits them three and a half years later, they're still at it. Sometimes you can do all the right things ministering for the Lord, but not get godly results. God has determined to allow men and women to exercise real free will. All that you are responsible for is your faithfulness to what God has called you to do. We can't judge on the basis of results, not in the spiritual realm, because those belong to each particular heart to determine. One more quick thought. I was thinking about this this morning. Would our church be considered a house of prayer? Now, I understand that the building is not the house of the Lord. When we gather together, we are the Lord's temple uh, as a group of Christians. Uh, 
And so in that sense, we're the house of the Lord. So would our church be considered a house of prayer? Well, let's analyze it two ways. First of all, you'd ask, are there sufficient opportunities to pray and to be prayed for? And I won't say yes, I'll just say that we're trying our best to have as many opportunities for prayer as possible. We have our prayer offering that we took today. We have a prayer chain, an internet prayer chain, which uh, we're going to start calling something different because I don't like the idea of a prayer chain. Chains bother me. They're like the chain letters you get. Do you get those emails? If you don't send this to 10 people, your house is going to catch on fire, your liver's going to be sold at auction, you know, things like that. And, and you don't want to do it, but then you think, I wonder if there's something to this curse stuff, you know, and, and it just, it throws you off. So chains, you know, can be broken. And so um, I think that what they call a bunch of people who are on a list of, of emails, at least the pastors call it a list server. So let's start calling it our prayer server. That makes more sense, does it not? So we have the prayer server. Uh, we have prayer events during the year, whether it's uh, you know, friends at midnight or different things that we've done from time to time. Every Sunday morning, we've got guys up front uh, to pray for you. We have a prayer room upstairs before each service on Sunday morning. You're welcome to go up there and communion is set up there so you can also have communion. Wednesday nights, at least uh, two or three times a month, uh, we have our gift shop prayer time where everyone is encouraged to pray uh, and to participate. And so, and, you know, we're always trying to come up with these ideas of prayer. So I won't say that we're doing uh, as much as we could or should because we always want to be doing more, but I think we're moving in that direction and, and we're on top of that. The second question, am I praying or receiving prayer when I am at the house of the Lord? Uh, and that's an individual question that only you can answer. I think last week I gave everybody a hard time, I think both services, uh, because every Sunday we do have guys standing here to pray for you, and every Sunday we say, if you need prayer, and of course, every one of us needs more prayer than we think, uh, and yet very few people ever come forward for prayer, and that's fine, we're not, you know, we're not wanting you to mob the guys and crush them you know, with your prayer needs, but if you've been coming to church for, let's say, 25 years, and you've never come forward and had anybody ever pray for you, and you don't attend any prayer meetings, you might wanna think that through in terms of uh, whether this is a house of prayer for you. Uh, and it's just, that's as gentle as I can be in just reproving all of us uh, who, not, you know, not to motivate you to prayer, but just to think about, hey, do I, what do I think about prayer based on how I approach opportunities to pray? And so verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now that's a better use for the court of the Gentiles, is it not? Jesus cleared out the secular and he got down to the spiritual. Uh, it's a reminder that we should always remember that whatever the Lord gives us uh, in terms of properties or material goods, it needs to be secondary to the needs of individuals. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of God, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to him, yeah. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Have you never read would sting because these guys had read Psalm 8. In fact, they had it memorized but they obviously didn't understand it. I all the time hear about people who 
quote, really know the Bible, but they're not believers. And people tend to be afraid of them, of their supposed intellect. Uh, This happens all the time. People say, well, you know, my brother or my boss or my wife or my husband, whoever it is, man, they, you know, they really know the Bible. They've really studied the Bible. They're not saved, but they really know the Bible. And when I bring stuff up, uh, it just confounds me. And there's a kind of a fear of their intellect. Have they never read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Have they never read that there is none righteous? No, not even one. Did they forget to underline in the Bible they supposedly know so well that the wages of sin is death? You know, if you're reading the Bible, I'll give you a pass right up until the Ten Commandments. Maybe some of it's a little nebulous. Uh, You know, I remember Pam and I trying to read the Bible before we were Christians as newlyweds, you know, and we couldn't get past the creeping things that were creeping on the earth. You know, it was just seemed creepy to us, as a matter of fact. But, uh, but I'll give you a pass up until the Ten Commandments. If you're such an intellect, if you're so, you know, into, you know, focusing on that, when you get to the Ten Commandments and God starts to hammer you with the fact that you can't keep a one of them, well, you, it, it, then you're not very smart if you don't get saved. And so I would rather be a babe or a nursing infant in comparison, so long as I'm saved and therefore giving praise to God. And so you don't need to back down from people who are intellectuals. Uh, And you don't need to engage them on their level. Their level is actually a low level. You need to engage their heart. That person has sinned, they're short of the glory of God. Their righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. They need what you have, they just don't know it. And all their intellect is a smoke screen. And they don't know the Bible or they certainly don't know it the way it was written and what it was intended for. And that was to show them Jesus Christ and their need for salvation. Verse 17, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. He was probably staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who he had recently raised from the dead. Let's talk about prophecy as proof of the Bible for just a minute. Some of you've been through these statistics before. If so, you still think they're fantastic. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you're ever hearing this. Professor Emeritus of Science at Westmont College, Peter Stoner, calculated the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made concerning the Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes involving 600 college students. After examining only eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it. To illustrate how large the number is, have you heard the Texas, the state of Texas? How many of you have heard the state of Texas before? All right, here it comes. You're gonna hear it again. He gives this illustration. Imagine covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars to a level of two feet deep total number of silver dollars needed to cover the whole state would be 10 to the 17th power. Choose one of those silver dollars, mark it, drop it from an airplane, then thoroughly stir up all the silver dollars all over the state. When that's been done, blindfold one man, tell him he can travel wherever he wishes in the state of Texas. But sometime he must stop, reach down into the two feet of silver dollars and pick up that one specific silver dollar that has been marked. 
The chance of his finding that one silver dollar in the state of Texas would be the chance the prophets had for eight of their prophecies coming true in any one man in the future. But of course, there are many more than eight prophecies. In another calculation, Stoner used 48 prophecies, even though he could have used a higher number, upwards of 352. And he arrived at the extremely conservative estimate that the probability of 48 prophecies being fulfilled in one person is one in 10 to the 157th power. And so we would say, you know, people say there's, the Bible's not scientific or there's no scientific proof or no proof or evidence that the Bible is true. Fulfilled prophecy, 75% of the Bible's prophecies literally fulfilled is absolute mathematical proof that the Bible is the word of God because it is impossible. Unless you're some crazy evolutionist intellectual who thinks I do believe that one man could find that one coin. You can't talk to a person like that. So we have the proof if they want to do it. The numbers boggle the mind. But do they touch the heart? And that's the important thing. This fulfillment of prophecy, both in the past but especially in the future, ought to cause you to fear the Lord. If you're a believer... You fear him, anxious to obey, knowing that history is moving towards its inevitable consummation, but more particularly that in your life, all things work together for the good and you want to be following the Lord's lead. If you're not a believer, the future for you is bleak. Imminently, the Lord is gonna return to resurrect and rapture believers. You'll be left behind to navigate the great tribulation when the vast majority of people on the earth will die violent deaths. Even if you had your bunker, which you don't, you wouldn't wanna be here for that. As evangelists like to point out, if you can't live for the Lord now, you won't be able to die for him then. Uh, And so it's gonna be brutal. Our second point, do you hear the Lord who solicits your participation? In the midst of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy are the choices, the real world choices of Jesus' disciples. If you wanna highlight or underline or memorize a verse from this passage, I would suggest verse six. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. If you were going to end each day with a Twitter summary of your activities, that would be a great 53 character tweet. Now, had Jesus made prearrangements for this particular donkey or this pair of donkeys? It's unlikely. You couldn't go online or via telephone and reserve a donkey for the day. There was no budget donkey rental at $19.95 a day and 10 cents a mile. It just didn't work that way. And this was no easy task. It involved faith and also risk. Now, we don't encourage steps of faith that are totally void of the Lord's leading. For example, And this is a true story. There was a lady here in town many years ago who would be led, so she said, to write you a check to help you out if you were struggling financially. The trouble was the checks she wrote were turned out to be faith checks, meaning she rarely had the money to cover them. Her defense was that if God led her to write you a check, then it was up to him to deposit the money in her account to cover it. And, and it's, it's funny, unless you were the person she wrote the check for, which wasn't me, but a friend of mine, he was a pastor, he was struggling, and uh, she knew that he needed groceries, so she wrote him a check for $100, which in 1985 was like $1 million today, and uh, inflation. But, uh, and so he went to the store, and he bought groceries, and then that check bounced, and he was in worse shape than he was before, and he 
gently confronted her about it because she was a sweet old lady. And she very honestly said, that's a faith check. And I wrote it by faith because the Lord told me to. And if the money's not there, I don't know what to tell you. Take it up with the Lord. At the same time, it's not faith unless there is some trust required, some element of the unknown. Some people are crippled in walking by faith because they want everything answered for them. What's it gonna be like? Who's gonna be there? How much is it gonna cost? Yada, yada, yada. And that's never going to happen. And so verse two, Jesus said, go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Were there no donkeys right where they were that had never been ridden? I wonder what they did to donkey thieves in those days. In the Gospel of Mark, you read about the reaction of a crowd at the time of their loosing of the donkeys. Mark 11:4 it says, so they went their way, they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. The Lord has need of them, so they let them go. I just saw a viral video the other day about a crowd of good Samaritans who stopped a carjacking by beating up the would-be thief. I wonder if he said, the Lord has need of this car. (laughs) Wouldn't have mattered. This was a serious assignment. They essentially were going and, for all practical purposes, stealing two donkeys. What was so special about this particular donkey? As near as I can tell, what was so special about it was that the Lord gave his disciples an opportunity to participate in ministry. There could have been a donkey in closer proximity. Jesus could have told them to ask around to get permission first to borrow a donkey. He could have had the donkey and her colt miraculously wander from the opposite village right up to where they were assembling for their trip to Jerusalem. None of those solutions would have partnered the disciples with him by faith as he sought to forward the kingdom. Jesus encourages you to partner with him by giving you opportunities to participate in the ministry. But you must walk by faith, taking the risks, trusting that he will cover you. Let's talk about the owner of these donkeys for a minute. He too would assume a risk. As far as the text is concerned, there was no plan for returning these donkeys. Was he expected to make the trip with them? Was this a one-way donkey rental? You know, it's hard to get one-way rentals sometimes because, oh, you know, we don't want our car left, you know, in Hanford. Nobody ever goes there. Or, or was he supposed to just count this as a loss for the joy of the Lord using his donkeys? I mean, there were several hundred thousand people in Jerusalem. How are you going to find these two donkeys after the Lord gets off of them? These beasts were source of income, or at least... The very least, they were help with everyday tasks. Even today, we buy beasts of burden for poor believers in India through gospel for Asia. I mean, this wasn't like a donkey lot. These were important animals to this man. It's all fun and games, the Christian life, until it's your donkeys that the Lord has need of or until it's you who are assigned to go and untie the donkeys. We read this story and we say, wow, man, faith, great, wow, cool. And then the Lord comes to you and says, hey, uh, I've got this city, Hanford. How'd you like to move there? Uh, How'd I like not to? You know, that kind of a thing. Or whatever it might be in your experience. It's all these stories there. So, wow, that's fantastic. What if it were your donkey? Or you think, well, (laughs) I don't have a donkey, so I pass. Well, you have something. 
You've got something that the Lord wants you to loose or you're to go somewhere and participate in some loosing. That, that's the deal you sign on for when you're a disciple. Now, another phrase in this passage that should cause us to wonder, the Lord has need of them. Don't pass over that, it's fantastic. The sovereign creator of the universe has need of two donkeys. I'm not gonna go deep into the mystery of it all, I can't really, but this puts us on notice that the sovereign God of the universe has created a world in which men and women have uh, genuine free will choices to make. Theologian Jerry White expresses it like this, he says, God has chosen to create people who are free and to accomplish his purposes through their undetermined choices. Our perfectly good and wise God exercises just the amount of control appropriate for the sort of world he chose to create. God's providence sees to it that his plan for history marches forward right on schedule. Along the way, though, he invites you to choose whether or not you're gonna participate with him, whether or not you'll take the ride with him, so to speak. Your choices are not meticulously determined. You are free to choose. These disciples sent to get the donkeys could have refused. I know in my life before, you know, as I look back over the 30 years or so that I've been a Christian, I, I can think of times uh, when I just didn't do what the Lord wanted me to do. The disciples could have chickened out on the way. They could have stopped loosing the donkeys when questioned by the crowd. I think I would, may, I would hope that I would have gotten at least that far. I would have went, found the donkeys immediately, looked around and think, how can I loose these? And you know, maybe I can have them follow, maybe I've got jerky in my hand or something. But when people threaten you, hey, what are you doing with those donkeys? To actually say, hey, the Lord has need of them and get beat up or risk, I mean, you know. So any of those things could have happened because you're dealing with real world issues. Now, if they had done that, these disciples, the Lord would have provided the donkey some other way. That's what providence is. But he wanted them to be a part of his big day. The Lord has a big day planned for each of us. It's the day we are with him face to face and he looks upon us to reward us for our faithful service. Not necessarily the results, as I said earlier, but the faithfulness of our service. Hence the questions we are here to answer. What is the Lord asking me to do? What risk of faith has he set before me or will he set before me as I seek him? As I just said, each of us has donkeys to loose or to be loosed today and every day in our walk with him as we are blessed to participate in the work of the gospel. Let's pray.